Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings starting May 8th wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On a bitterly cold morning in January 1936, a young woman in Cleveland was awakened by a barking dog. In fact, all the neighborhood dogs were howling all night. The temperature had dropped into the single digits that night, and no one was eager to investigate. But by the next morning, the dog was still raising hell, and the young woman couldn't take it anymore. She bundled up and left her apartment to see what was creating such a ruckus. Outside the Hart Manufacturing Plant on East 20th Street, she came across two baskets left in the snow. Peeking inside revealed some hams wrapped in newspaper. Figuring they must have come from the meat market just down the street, she went over and told the market's owner about the hams, lest they be left out and spoil. The owner didn't know anything about this. Afraid his shop had been robbed, he rushed over and inspected the baskets, this time more thoroughly. It wasn't ham inside the newspapers, it was dismembered human remains. Thighs, arms, hands, and a torso. The mad butcher of Kingsbury Run had struck again. Welcome to Kingpins, a ParCast original. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This is our second episode on Elliot Ness, the Prohibition super cop best remembered for leading a group of supposedly incorruptible agents dubbed the Untouchables. Unbeknownst to those around him, Ness's zeal for busting bootleggers masked a deep sense of depression and emptiness, one that would only worsen as Ness slid into obscurity. In 1930, United States Attorney George Johnson assigned 28-year-old Elliot Ness to lead a special Al Capone squad. Their task was to do as much damage as possible to the Kingpin's finances, while Johnson and the IRS put together a tax evasion case against Capone. Ness's unit would soon be nicknamed the Untouchables. From their inception, the Untouchables took on a mythic grandeur. When they were searching for candidates, there were stringent qualifications. Agents had to be single and no older than 30. They must be tough enough to brawl with gangsters and nimble with guns, but also well-versed in modern scientific investigative techniques. He was looking for Renaissance men. Alas, the reality Ness was offered fell conspicuously short. For one, as the squad's leader, Ness was also its youngest member. His 28 years paled in comparison to some of the middle-aged agents. Most were married, several had children. Ness's autobiography lists 11 men, including himself, as members of the Untouchables. This was also stretching the facts. Membership was always in flux as agents came and went, with only a handful sticking with Ness from the beginning until the very end. The reason Ness couldn't get the elite do-gooders he sought was pragmatic. Few administrators in the Bureau of Prohibition were willing to part with their best agents. What Ness got was not a crack team of super agents, but mostly older, unwanted men that could be spared. However, if the candidates for the untouchables were less than ideal, then that makes what they accomplished under Ness even more remarkable. They may not have been an elite squad when they assembled for duty in December 1930, but in time, Ness would forge them into one. Not all the agents showed up eager to get down to business. Lyle Chapman was a college graduate with a keen, analytical mind. He was also allergic to hard work. His initial reaction to being assigned to the Capone squad was to try and weasel his way out of it. Ness was particularly excited to nab William Gardner for his squad, primarily because Gardner had been a star college football player. But he had also nearly been fired from the Bureau for laziness and insubordination. Other agents would prove more reliable. Bernard Clunan, a former Marine, was the muscle, while Joe Leeson was considered the best tail car man in the country. Add Jim Seeley, a hard-nosed ex-private detective, and the honest Samuel Maurice Seeger. And Ness had himself a squad. If the Capone squad itself was a bit of a mixed bag, at least it could count on having the finest resources for gang-busting. 
The Bureau of Prohibition provided Nest with three bulletproof Cadillacs and an armory of pistols, sawed-off shotguns, submachine guns, and grenades. With such tools, the untouchable's objective was simple enough. Put the squeeze on Capone. Such pressure might make the kingpin sloppy, which would make building the crucial tax evasion case against him far easier. Ness's specific strategy was equally blunt and direct. Take down Capone's breweries. They were the biggest moneymaker and the most vulnerable part of his empire. It'd be hard for the gangsters to clear away all the evidence before a raid. The squad realized their best bet was to follow the barrels. The beer itself was consumed quickly, leaving no paper trail. The barrels, though, had to be reused. The Capone squad staked out one of the city's biggest speakeasies, then followed the empty beer barrels as they were picked up and delivered to a building in Bridgeport, a neighborhood on Chicago's south side. It turned out to be a barrel-cleaning facility. By sticking with the containers as they were cleaned and sent out again, Ness could follow them to Capone's breweries throughout the city. One of the biggest producers was housed in a nondescript building marked as the Old Reliable Trucking Company. The Capone squad raided it in April 1931, crashing through the brewery's steel doors using a jerry-rigged battering ram. Large amounts of equipment, tens of thousands of gallons of beer, and many bootleggers were swept up in the dragnet. It was an inspiring success that validated Ness's leadership. He needed a triumph to earn the respect of his fellow agents in the Capone squad, all of whom were older and more experienced than him, and most of whom didn't even want to be there in the first place. The planning and execution of the raid converted them. Not every agent was enamored with their young boss, but most applauded his relentless work ethic and keen strategic mind. Underneath the victories, Ness kept his worries tucked close. He never shared his anxiety with the team. In time, though, Ness's inability to overcome his inner demons would gradually eat away at him. Though the raid cemented Ness's leadership and proved that Capone was not invulnerable, it did little to upset the Kingpin's operations. The arrested bootleggers made bail and other breweries picked up production. The outfit was large enough to absorb even big raids like this one. There was too much money on the line to let business stop. The hooch must flow. Nevertheless, the press and public were electrified by the untouchables' achievements. Finally, someone was standing up to Capone. Someone was taking back Chicago from the killers and goons. The untouchables were praised as incorruptible crusaders. Ness encouraged reporters to follow him to raids where he could pose smashing open beer barrels and occasionally passing out confiscated bottles to newspapermen. The work was dangerous and exciting, full of adventure. The legend of the Untouchables was already becoming larger than life. But not everyone was so smitten. While Capone's outfit initially flirted with the idea of killing Ness, they soon turned to a simpler, more elegant solution, bribing him. Mobsters appeared in Ness's office, offering to pay him his entire year's salary each month if he played ball. Ness wasted no time in tossing them out. Mobsters tried the other agents too. 
They drove by and chucked envelopes stuffed with cash into their cars. They responded by chasing down the mobsters and throwing the money back in their faces. Ness knew he would never crack, but he wasn't always certain his men had the same moral fiber. So he and Seeger, perhaps the only agent Ness trusted, spied on the other untouchables. Ness was right to be cautious. As it turned out, some of the untouchables were only human. But for now, Ness had to keep them on his side as best he could. It was time to bring justice to Capone. In June 1931, the federal government finally unleashed its tax evasion case against Capone. A 22-count indictment was leveled against the kingpin, alleging that he'd earned over a million dollars in illicit income between 1924 and 1929. Capone hadn't paid taxes on any of it. The chief architects of this case were U.S. Attorney George Johnson and IRS Special Agent Frank Wilson, who decrypted Capone's coded business ledgers. More so than Elliot Ness, they were the men responsible for bringing down the boss. But at the time, they needed a contingency plan if the tax evasion case fell through. And that was where the Capone squad came in. A week after the tax evasion indictment, another indictment was issued, this time for conspiracy and violation of the Volstead Act. Thanks to the hard work of the Capone squad, the indictment included more than 5,000 offenses. This second indictment alleged that Capone's bootlegging operation pulled in at least $13 million a year, approximately $207 million today. And that was just from selling beer. It was one thing to ignore prohibition, but making millions and not paying taxes on any of it while many Americans struggled just to get by was unacceptable. Johnson and Wilson were confident with their plan B. Conspiracy and bootlegging were strong charges. They hoped they didn't need it, granted the tax case was so promising. Al Capone was brought to trial for tax evasion on October 5, 1931. For the first time, Elliot Ness saw Capone in person, though he kept his distance. The trial got off to an auspicious start. Upon learning that Capone's men had a list of the prospective jurors, Judge Wilkerson switched jury pools with another judge. And once they got started, thanks to Frank Wilson's decrypting of the Capone ledgers, the details of the Kingpin's business was laid bare. The evidence was overwhelming. After just two weeks, Al Capone was found guilty. One week after that, he was sentenced to a $50,000 fine and 11 years in prison. Big Al was officially deposed. Already suffering from the later stages of syphilis, all that he had left to look forward to was a slow mental decline. And just like that, one of the biggest, deadliest, and most famous kingpins in American history was taken down. Up next, we'll explore the disintegration of the untouchables in the wake of Capone's downfall. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. 
The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now back to the story. After months of struggle, Elliot Ness could pat himself on the back for helping to bring down America's biggest kingpin, Al Capone, in 1931. It should have been his greatest triumph. David had slain Goliath. But as usual, after the big raids were over, Ness was left melancholy. Bringing down Capone had been his obsession for months. As soon as it was over, he felt empty and dejected. The chase was everything to Ness. Without it, he struggled to find meaning in his life. Similarly, without a boogeyman to chase, the Capone squad soon unraveled. In February 1932, Ness listened to a wiretapped conversation where he overheard one of his agents, muscle-bound Bernard Clunan, accept a bribe from a known bootlegger. Rather than confront Clunan and damage the reputation of the untouchables, the Bureau quietly transferred him out of Chicago. Lyle Chapman fell from grace, too. The indifferent college graduate was put to work in September 1932 on building a new conspiracy indictment against Capone with the intention of keeping him ineligible for parole. At first, Chapman rolled up his sleeves and got to work. But while he meticulously built a new gallows for Capone, his colleagues in the Prohibition Bureau spied on him. Off hours, Chapman was seen to be visiting speakeasies, a hobby which had become increasingly intolerable to the Bureau. To add to that, Chapman and his wife were accused of bringing a teenage girl on their benders, whom they were accused of sexually corrupting. The Bureau sat on the evidence until Chapman finished his indictment, then he was quietly discharged. To wrap up the dismissals, William Gardner, Ness's once prized former football star, was sacked for blatant insubordination and alcoholism. Luckily, prohibition was marching towards repeal. FDR had made it part of his 1932 presidential election platform. Now in the White House, it was only a matter of time before the ban was lifted. In December 1933, the 18th Amendment was abolished ending prohibition, and what little was left of the untouchables. What remained of the Prohibition Bureau became the Alcohol Tax Unit, or ATU. Their mission was to ensure brewers and distributors paid their taxes. Ness transferred to Cleveland in 1934, where he was promoted to chief investigator for the Northern District of Ohio. With the mob battered in Chicago, he was walking into the next most dangerous and corrupt city in the nation. Perhaps to compensate for the feeling of emptiness in the wake of the Capone squad, Ness set a relentless pace. 
For a month after first taking the job, he insisted on launching a raid per day. Still, the victories were bittersweet. Ness was now less of a moral crusader and more of an aggressive tax collector. Though there were still raids, Ness frequently found himself arresting people for possessing empty liquor bottles, which was, at the time, illegal. Fortunately, though, he was about to get another break. In 1935, Harold Burton, the mayor of Cleveland, was in search of a new director of public safety. The position supervised the entire police and fire departments for the city, managing over 2,700 employees. The mayor's scouring led him to Ness, who stood out due to his reputation in the highly publicized war against Capone. In December, 33-year-old Ness was made director of public safety for Cleveland. The position reinvigorated Ness. He didn't heed the warnings that laws in Cleveland were unenforceable. Its corruption was too deep to be eradicated. The size of the challenge inspired him. He thrived on chasing impossible goals, and he was too ambitious for modest police work. Reforming society had long been his primary motivation. Ness was proud of his work in Chicago, but he had never really believed in prohibition itself. It was a deeply unpopular, ultimately frivolous and impotent law. Now he had the chance to effect real, lasting change. So, on to the Herculean task before him, cleaning up Cleveland. The most mobbed-up city in America also conveniently had a corrupt police department to match. Reformers had promised change before and failed to deliver. But Ness thought he could wipe out the cynicism that pervaded Cleveland. He wouldn't settle for bumping up arrest numbers and appearing tough on crime. Sweeping institutional changes were the way forward. The blueprint for police professionalism had been drawn up by Ness's former teacher at the University of Chicago, August Vollmer. The professor and former police chief was among the first to attempt to bring law enforcement out of the Victorian era. Like most American cities, Cleveland offered no training to police recruits. New officers were simply handed a gun and put on the street. Balmer's ideas were radical for their time. Formal training for new recruits, policemen with college degrees, using the latest scientific procedures in criminal investigations, and equipping squad cars with radios. Most radical was Vollmer's belief that cities should focus on fixing the conditions that promote crime in the first place, rather than merely arresting people once they've committed a crime. It made sense that Ness idolized Vollmer. The new safety director's goal was to take Vollmer's theories and put them into practice in a major city. Before Ness could reform the police department, however, he needed to make a big splash with the public to make it clear he was going to follow through on his promises to clean up Cleveland. When Sheriff Ness rode into town, gambling was to Cleveland as bootlegging had been to Chicago. Everyone gambled in the sixth city. So Ness launched a blitzkrieg against the city's gambling halls. Heavily armed special agents crashed poker games. Sledgehammers demolished slot machines. The gamblers' hidden safes were dynamited. Ness didn't stop at gambling either. Any industry the Cleveland mob had a hand in, Ness wanted destroyed. 
His men shut down so many of the mob's brothels that the local lingerie industry crashed. With his reputation as a gangbuster firmly established, Ness turned to modernizing the police force. He convinced the city council to fund Cleveland's first police training school, then acted as its temporary dean. Ness insisted that the squad cars be equipped with two-way radios so that officers could quickly respond to emergencies. He also paved the way for using security cameras back when they still used bulky celluloid, which would trigger automatically during a bank robbery. According to author Douglas Perry, Ness quietly recruited African-Americans, believing they would do a better job policing their own neighborhoods than white officers. In order to combat corruption in the Cleveland Police Department, Ness revived the Untouchables model, a group of secret investigators who reported only to him. Once again, the press gave the special squad a nickname, the Unknowns, a not-so-subtle wink at the Untouchables. Thanks to them, for the first time in the city's history, cops in Cleveland were put on trial for bribery. Not everyone was pleased with Ness's crusading, though. After watching her father receive a guilty verdict in court, the daughter of one police captain turned and spat in Ness's face. But Ness kept going. Putting Vollmer's ideas into practice, he worked to prevent crime before it happened. He targeted young gang members, hoping to turn them into productive members of society. He established boys' clubs and Boy Scout troops for the youngest members, giving them a structure and purpose they desperately needed. He helped the older ones find jobs. He pressed the city to build basketball courts and baseball fields. He would later establish a crime prevention bureau focused on juvenile delinquency. The results were extraordinary. In three years, juvenile crime in Cleveland dropped by more than 60%. 18 months after Ness became director of public safety, crime in Cleveland plummeted by 25%, while arrests and convictions rose by 20%. Yet for all the problems Ness tackled in Cleveland, a new menace was creeping about the city. While Ness was focused on cleaning up the police department, the deadliest serial killer in Cleveland's history was on the loose. It started in September 1935, when a body was found in Kingsbury Run on the city's east side. In the depths of the Depression, Kingsbury Run was a maze of shantytowns. Destitute people survived by scavenging for rotting vegetables and dead chickens. The poorest didn't even have a cardboard box to call their own. The first body found in Kingsbury Run had been decapitated, castrated, and drained of blood. That same day, another decapitated, castrated body was found nearby. Winter didn't deter the spree. On a bitterly cold morning in January 1936, a Cleveland woman stumbled upon two baskets of what she thought to be hams. They were human remains. Though the press made the connection to the earlier victims, the police hesitated to assume a serial killer was on the loose, until a fourth victim appeared in June. Two young boys stumbled across a severed head in Kingsbury Run. Police found the body nearby. This was a young man who had been decapitated while still alive. Growing desperate, 
Police allowed citizens into the morgue to get a glimpse of the corpse in the hopes of identifying him to no avail. That July in Brooklyn Township, just outside Cleveland, another naked body was found. The head was again located nearby, this time wrapped in the victim's clothing. In September, a homeless man stumbled across a headless, limbless torso drifting in a pool of dirty water on East 37th Street. Of the six victims, four had been left in Kingsbury Run. The coroner noted that the cut surfaces had clean edges, suggesting that the dismemberment was performed by an expert, probably a butcher or surgeon. He also rather flippantly suggested that the killer was a sex maniac. Terror gripped the city. The press, unsurprisingly, fed speculations, dubbing the killer the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. The gruesome story was so sensational that even the Soviet Union newspaper Pravda reported on it. At times, the hysteria took on a racist angle. One bigoted rumor purported that the killings were done by, quote, colored hobos who practiced cannibalism. In February 1937, another torso washed ashore on Lake Erie. Cleveland was outraged that Mayor Burton and his director of public safety were still failing to keep them safe. The most vocal critic was Ohio Congressman Martin Sweeney, who publicly thundered against Burton's inability to stop the murders. So, with the pressure heating up, Mayor Burton forced Elliot Ness to take charge of the investigation. Coming up, we'll follow Elliot Ness's pursuit of a ruthless killer. Now, back to the story. In 1937, rampant murders around Cleveland had the city on edge. Public safety director Elliot Ness found the killings as sickening as anyone, but the investigation was a frustrating distraction. He was in the middle of reforming society, not chasing after a bloodthirsty sex maniac. A professional through and through, he approached the hunt for the mad butcher with his usual thoroughness. Every homeless person in Kingsbury Run was questioned. Squad cars patrolled the area 24 hours a day. Unfortunately, the pace of the killings only accelerated. The victims spanned across every demographic. In June, the body of a black woman was found beneath the Lorraine Carnegie Bridge. A month later, the mutilated pieces of a white man were found in the Cuyahoga River. Then, in March 1938, a woman's dog was playing in the woods just outside Sandusky, Ohio. The dog disappeared into the brush, only to reemerge with a human leg in its mouth. David Cowles, Cleveland's superintendent of criminal identification, drove out to Sandusky to investigate. There, he came upon the trail of a 44-year-old former doctor who appeared to be exactly the man they were looking for. The doctor had served in the Great War, where he'd been attacked with poison gas and never fully recovered. After the war, he descended into alcoholism and mental illness. His ex-wife had twice tried to have him committed to an institution. Once his medical career fell apart, he disappeared from public records only reappearing sporadically as a convalescent at the Ohio Soldiers and Sailors Home in Sandusky. There was just one catch. The doctor's name was Francis Sweeney, 
and he was the cousin of Martin Sweeney, the very congressman who had been vehemently criticizing Mayor Burton and Elliot Ness's investigation into the murders. Ness brushed aside any political concerns and ordered Francis Sweeney be monitored. Over the next month, the ex-doctor wasn't seen doing anything heinous. He didn't seem to do much at all. But then in April, pieces of another victim were found in the Cuyahoga River. The coroner determined that the victim had been killed only days before. Ness had been watching Sweeney. Was it possible the doctor had slipped away long enough to murder without Ness or any of his men noticing? Ness had Sweeney taken off the streets and bundled into a room at the Cleveland Hotel. There, his team interrogated Sweeney for eight hours a day for a week straight. Not intimidated, the doctor pleasantly responded to their questions with taunts and riddles. With no evidence linking Sweeney to the murders and the fact that he was related to the very politician who had been criticizing his investigation, Ness had to let the doctor go. But that didn't mean Ness was going to let up the pressure. He ordered the unknowns to keep monitoring him closely. If Sweeney was innocent, they could deal with the invasion of privacy concerns. If Sweeney was guilty, this was the only way to ensure he didn't kill again. But to Sweeney, it was all a game. He knew he was being tailed and took pleasure in evading Ness's agents. Once, a rookie agent followed Sweeney onto a streetcar. The former doctor appeared to fall asleep, but then, just as the car's doors were closing, he leapt up and dashed out the doors onto a passing trolley, leaving the agent in the dust. Sweeney then called police headquarters and told a desk sergeant that the kid they had tailing him wasn't very good. If Ness hoped that the constant surveillance of Sweeney would put a stop to the killings, he was sorely mistaken. In August 1938, men scavenging in a vacant lot came upon the torso of a young woman wrapped in a quilt. Police soon discovered the severed head, arms, and the legs, which had been wrapped in butcher paper and strapped together by a rubber band. Later that same day, the body of a man was also found in the same lot. While performing the autopsy, the coroner discovered something surprising. The female victim had been embalmed. It was entirely possible that she hadn't been murdered, but was a corpse stolen from a mortuary and then chopped up. Ness was devastated. He felt as if he had personally failed to stop at least one, if not two, fresh killings. Chillingly, this was the first time that the killer had left the victims downtown. The vacant lot where they were found was, in fact, right outside the window of Ness's office. Desperate, Ness resorted to a callous, cold-blooded gambit to stop the killer. Two days after the vacant lot discoveries, Ness ordered dozens of policemen armed with axes, billy clubs, and hammers to move in on the Hooverville of Kingsbury Run. Spotlights attached to fire trucks illuminated the night. The police smashed open makeshift huts made from cardboard and corrugated metal, forcibly dragging out confused, panicking homeless men. Ness moved among them, asking questions and taking notes. One man came at Ness swinging a shovel, but officers leapt in and savagely beat him with truncheons. The shanties were torn down with axes and shovels. Sixty homeless men were arrested. 
Then, when the area had been cleared out, the fire department moved in. The Hooverville was doused with oil and set ablaze. Of the men arrested, those who could prove they were employed were released. Those who couldn't were held without charges. Ness thought he was doing the right thing. He thought he had taken the only option left, eradicating the killer's hunting ground. The press did not agree. For the first time since coming to Cleveland, the tide turned against Ness. Newspapers lambasted his misguided zeal and thoughtless strong-arm tactics. The safety director was accused of amassing too much power, which he now used indiscriminately, unbeholden to oversight. The torso murders ended with a whimper. In the aftermath of the Kingsbury Run raids, Francis Sweeney returned to Sandusky, where he voluntarily committed himself to the Veterans Hospital. And then the killings stopped. Whether this was a coincidence or whether Sweeney had been the killer still isn't known. Even the victims remain largely unknown. Of the 12 official victims, only two were ever identified. The cases were never solved. With the torso murders winding down, Elliot Ness's years of relentlessly hard work started catching up to him. Early in his marriage, he had enjoyed spending his free time with his wife, listening to music and working on jigsaw puzzles together. But as Ness burned out and his marriage disintegrated, he was more likely to sit in a chair, drink heavily, and stare into space. In 1938, Ness and his first wife divorced. Once their separation was finalized, they would never speak again. In 1942, Ness came under fire for failing to properly report an automobile accident he was involved in. Bad news kept coming. Next, the press broke a story about four white teenage girls having sex with black nightclub entertainers, possibly in exchange for money. The public's racially charged outrage fell on Ness. The safety director was accused of being soft on prostitution. Disillusioned by the ingratitude of the public he had worked tirelessly to protect, 39-year-old Ness left his job as public safety director. In the ensuing years, Ness sank deeper into depression and alcoholism. It was becoming harder to keep the feeling of emptiness at bay. Five years later, in 1947, Ness attempted something of a comeback, announcing his candidacy for mayor of Cleveland. Perhaps buoyed by his former glory, he thought he might stand a chance against the popular incumbent, Thomas Burke. His campaign slogan was, Ness is necessary. The constituents disagreed. The former leader of the Untouchables lost in a landslide defeat. Humiliated, he slunk into the private sector, where he lost most of his money attempting to prop up a small import-export business. The company dropped Ness in 1951. Unable to find work in law enforcement, his true passion, the great Elliot Ness was reduced to selling frozen hamburger patties. In 1955, Oscar Fraley, a sports reporter from United Press International, met Ness at a hotel. A mutual friend encouraged Ness to tell Fraley about how he had taken on Al Capone long ago. Ness told him stories all night. Fraley was transfixed. Within days, the two had a deal for a book about Ness's time with the Untouchables. Ness lived long enough to read the manuscript, but not to see it published. 
He suffered a heart attack and died in 1957 at the age of 55. Ness was not a perfect man. The enduring notion that he and the untouchables were primarily responsible for taking down Al Capone is a myth. When given the leeway to pursue ambitious goals, though, Ness shined. From taking on the Chicago outfit to cleaning up Cleveland, he came alive when the task seemed beyond reach. Law enforcement had always given him his greatest sense of purpose. For this, his victories would always compete with the anxiety and depression married to them. Still, Ness remains a snapshot of integrity during Prohibition's heyday. Despite the chaos in America's cities, he did what he could to sow the seeds of humanity and professionalism in law enforcement. That legacy continues to live alongside the tall tales about battling Capone. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. For more information on Elliot Ness, amongst the many sources we used, we found Elliot Ness, The Rise and Fall of an American Hero by Douglas Perry, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Kingpins, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers are Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Kingpins was written by Devin Hughes, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett. <laughs>